You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Here in the seventh inning, the Yankees are trailing 2-0. That is the key man. Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yaspinski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2. Deep to left, Yastrzemski will not get it, it's a home run! A three-run home run for Bucky Dent, the Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club you'd expect to hit a home run, just hit one into the screen, Bucky Dent. Hi there, everyone. I'm Bucky Dent. Welcome to this week's episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. This is a really special episode of Deep to Left. This week, we will celebrate the 42nd anniversary of that great game. To help us celebrate it, we have a special guest with a voice that every fan will recognize, and that is Bob Costas. Before we get there, though, with me right now on the line, we have Deputy Editor of Yankees Magazine, John Schwartz. What's going on, Bucky? How are you doing, buddy? I, I'm doing great. I feel like I should say happy anniversary. I feel like I should say happy postseason. It's a pretty uh, special week right now. Yes, it is, man. We're looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to talking to Bob about it because he has a lot of good things to say about different things in baseball because he's he's the man. Here, here's the thing. I don't think you're ever going to find someone with just a deeper love and reverence for baseball than Bob Costas. And I know that obviously he's an opinionated guy and sometimes, you know, like you, Bucky, you know, I wouldn't say he loves everything about everything that he sees all the time, but he comes at it from such a position of love and affection for the sport that he's someone you have to listen to. And he's someone who you love listening to with a voice that just, I mean, every one of us, you know, can hear it in our sleep, right? Oh, absolutely. And I've followed him for a long, long time. And uh, I've been at a different events with him and he's such class and oh my god his delivery is is just amazing to me and uh i've always admired him and i'm i'm so glad that we got him on today it's gonna be special i i think that i i know just me personally yeah i'm gonna be sitting here uh watching the monitor and making sure everything's working right but i just can't wait to listen to what the two of you have to say i don't care if it's you guys talking about the deep to left homer or if you guys talking about just a random hit and run play from 1976 or something like that, because I know he has some memories of those. Oh, I can't wait. I mean, he's got a, I mean, he just so much knowledge of the game of baseball and I'm really looking forward to talking to him also, you know, talking about this year, you know, this has been a weird year and all the teams in the playoffs and his ideas on that and going forward in baseball and you know what, what he thinks we're going to, you know, look forward to in the future. It is a weird year and it's, just such a strange year, partly just because how short it was. We're here. It's Tuesday now. The playoffs are starting today. I mean, we, it feels like we just started, and here we go. We're we're into the postseason. It's just about to turn to October. This is the time we live for, but usually we have a little bit more of a buildup to it, I guess. Oh yeah, when the leaves start to turn and the lights, the big lights come on. Oh baby, it's it's good baseball now, and I'm looking forward to it. 
we get that chill in the air. And I, I'll tell you what, uh, this might not mean much to you down in Florida, but we've had a fire going uh, on our patio each of the last couple of nights because it's that time of year. It's just sit outside, get a fire going and watch them play off baseball. Nothing like it. Nothing like There's it. There's nothing like it. Yep. Well, look, no one wants to hear from me right now. You know what they want to hear from? They want to hear you talk to Bob Costas. So why don't we move right into that? Well, let's get them on the line. Bob, I, I can't tell you how much I'm glad and thank you for coming on the show. Oh, happy to do it. I've been so excited to talk baseball with you. And uh, we're going into the postseasons. And, you know, I, ju- I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on this year of baseball. It's been a weird one. I give the players a lot of credit. But, you know, now we're going into the postseason. we got eight teams that are going to be battling out. What's your, what's your thoughts? Do you like that? I like, or at least I'm okay with, almost anything this year because of the unique circumstances. I've said this a few times on various shows from the beginning. I've said, you know, I'm good with just about anything short of running the bases clockwise during this season, because they have to make do, they have to figure something out. And there was a period of time when there was a delay, you know, squabbling with the players association. They wanted to start on July 4th. That gets pushed back. Then early on, the Marlins have an outbreak. Later, the Cardinals have an outbreak. And you said, maybe they can't make it all the way across on this tightrope walk. But I have to give everybody credit from the commissioner's office on down, team executives, players, everybody. By and large, nothing's perfect, but they stuck with the protocols close to 100% of the time. And it looks like they're going to make it through. So now here we have this postseason. And does this make sense? Would this kind of format make sense going forward? Of course not. Where, where the best team has to play a two out of three against a team that barely sneaks in and is around 500. And everyone knows that two out of three in baseball is different than in any other sport, even if you have, quote, in this first round, a home field advantage. But it's a home field advantage without any fans. Yeah, you're going to get some results here almost inevitably that are not going to conform to the actual quality of these teams over a full season, let alone over 60 games. But we have to accept it. It was the best solution under the circumstances. Do you like them playing in these neutral sites? I mean, it's kind of weird that, uh, you know, they're talking about putting them in neutral sites, but yet they're going to let some fans come in and watch the games. I, I think that's, you know, like you said, it, it's, it, you know, we got to get through it this year, but I, I just think it's weird. It's weird. There's no question. And yet, I think what will happen, maybe not right away, but through the rearview mirror, this will be a quirky bit of baseball history. There's lots of quirkiness and circumstances that are unique throughout the history of baseball. And people will look back on it. And 20 years from now, people who weren't around for this season will say, gee, look at that, a batting title. Somebody hit whatever. or They won a home run title with this many home runs or an ERA title with an ERA under one. Do I compare that to Bob Gibson in 1968? I don't think I do. But, but still, you know, there's lots of mental asterisks that baseball fans have. Uh, any aware fan has a mental asterisk after Barry Bonds' single season and career home run record. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. It'll be in the record books as it is. But informed fans know what went on. Informed fans know about the 1919 World Series. They know about all these circumstances. They know that in 1920, they went from a dead ball to a lively ball, and that it's difficult to compare statistics pre and post. They know about all the changes over the years, higher mound, lower mound, all those things. Uh, And it makes for baseball discussion. So I'm not troubled by it. I accept it for what it is on its face as a one-off. But what I'm concerned about is going forward, they're going to have to take some of these concepts and think them through carefully. 
if they're going to expand the playoffs beyond this year, they've got to do it in a way that honors the meaning of the long regular season. They can't do it this way when we're back to normal. Oh, I totally agree. You know, I mean, back when I was playing and now they went into the, you know, the wild card and, and now they put two in. Um, it just, it, at first, at first I was like, oh, wild card, really? I mean, holy cow. And then now two, it was a little bit different. But going forward, if they're going to put so many teams in, I, I just think it's going to diminish uh, the game. And you're, and you're, you know, you're one of the historians and you're a purist. And I, and I like to say that I'm a purist because I, I love the game of baseball, but I, I just don't like a whole lot of the changes that they're trying to enforce. You know, the DH looks like the DH is going to be here to stay in the National League. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think so. And the reason is that, again, under normal circumstances, you're playing a lot of interleague games. And American League front office people and managers are concerned about their pitchers hitting. First of all, it's a bit of a competitive disadvantage because even though National League pitchers as a group aren't great hitters, they're more adept at it than American League pitchers are because they get more practice, even if that practice is just laying down a bunt or running the bases. But the real concern is that a number of American League pitchers have been hurt primarily running the bases during interleague games. And the investment in these players is much larger than when you played. So that's a concern. And part of the argument will be that the DH has been around for so long that really the National League is the only level of baseball anywhere that doesn't use the DH. And the Players Association will be in favor of that and might trade another concession in return because we know that a DH, generally speaking, is a higher salaried player. So it adds another player to to the payroll. So all indications are that the pitcher batting is going to go away completely. And like you, I think that's a loss. I accept it the way it is that there are different rules in the two leagues. I think that's kind of interesting, especially in the World Series when you play with it in an American League park and without it in a National League park. And I'm not saying you have to be a rocket scientist to decide whether to bunt or hit away or pinch it for the pitcher or let him take his swings or pull a double switch. But all those things add a little bit of interest and texture to the game. Baseball is a game where whether you're in the booth or in the dugout or you're just a fan munching on peanuts and talking to the person next to you, you talk about it. It plays out at a pace where you say, hey, what would you do here? What about that? And you think ahead. Hey, the pitcher's the first batter in the next inning. Are they going to double switch? Is he running out of gas? You know, all those things add texture to the game. And the more sameness there is in it, then the less of those nuances. And baseball's already getting away from those nuances on the field. It's an all-or-nothing game. We see a lot of games where as many as half the outs, sometimes even more, half the outs in a game are on strikeout. And you'll see games where teams score four runs on six hits because, <laughs> because half of those hits are home runs. Everybody likes the home run. I remember one you hit in 1978. But, but they should be punctuations. They, they shouldn't be the very essence of the game. Well, I, I agree, you know, and, and you know, I, I think, and I talked about it a couple of times on my podcast, I was talking with Sharone, I think the last time we were on a couple of weeks ago about, you know, when, when I grew up, it was the American League and the National League. And I remember my first All-Star game I played in, how big it was in 75, because, you know, you play the National League in spring training a little bit, but, you know, 
now I make an all-star team and I'm playing against all these great players from the National League, which you hear about, but you you never really played against mm-hmm. them during the season. And and I think the mystique was there. And, you know, I just love that. And not till I went to the National League in 91 to coach with the Cardinals that I realized how different the National League game was played. Double switching, you know, stealing, doing this and doing that. And I've always said it right now, the way the game's played, I don't know if you'll you'll see a guy steal 100 bases. They don't run anymore. They don't, and the analytics say that an out on the bases, a caught stealing, is more of a negative than the extra bag is a positive. But you think back to the teams that preceded the one that you coached for in the early 90s in St. Louis, the Whitey Herzog teams of the 80s, not only did they win three pennants, but the way they played was so exciting and so different. I mean, they'd win the pennant, and as a team, they'd hit under 100 home runs. Whitey Herzog's joke used to be, at that time, Roger Maris still held the record with the 61 homers. He said, we're trying to beat Roger Maris's record as a team. And, and one year in 82, when they won the World Series against the Brewers, they actually had 67 home runs as a team. But you can't say that that wasn't a really exciting team to watch. They were. Oh, my God. They were a lot of fun to watch. And, uh, uh, you know, there were some other teams, you know, that were that were a lot of fun. But they it seemed back then and you know I don't like to you know downgrade anything but it seemed teams were built with what they had you know like okay we got these fast guys are going to run we got some three guys in the middle of the lineup they're going to bang it and the other guys are good just going to you know try and put the ball in play or whatever but it seems now whoever wins the world series everybody says okay we're going to we're going to build our team like this like take for instance the Kansas City Royals a few years ago they won it with a power bullpen now everybody is building their bullpens with power. And mm-hmm. I, I just think there's no individualism in baseball where teams say, this is who we are, and this is how we're going to play it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, you know, sports in general is a copycat thing. Not completely, but you see a lot of that. So a certain approach takes hold in football and someone's successful with it and others try to copy it. But you have to think, as you said, Bucky, What's my personnel? What's my personnel? You know, there was a period of time when people thought uh, that you need to have mobile quarterbacks, sort of a a pistol-type offense. Those are the guys. RG3 in Washington, unfortunately, he got hurt. Cam Newton and and others. And yet, if you were Bill Belichick during that period of time, wait a minute, my guy's Tom Brady. (laughs) I got the guy who does this really well. That's what I'm going to do. You know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. So, uh, you know, you would hope that people would recognize that. What are, what are some of the great moments that etched in your memory of, of some of the games that you've called? Well, if I go back to the 80s, uh, in 85, George Brett had a remarkable series and especially one game against uh, the Blue Jays. The Royals were down two games to, to none. They came home to Kansas City. He hit two home runs off Doyle Alexander and had two other base hits. He went four for five. Later in the series, and this is before Barry Bonds became what we knew Barry Bonds as toward the end of his career, they walked Brett in one situation with first base occupied. That's how hot he was. And the Royals came back from down 3-1 and beat the Blue Jays. And Tony Kubek and I were doing that series. Then in the World Series, they're also down 3-1 to the Cardinals. We didn't do that one. Al Michaels did on ABC, but they also came back and won the next three games and won the World Series with it. Yeah, let's go to the 90s. 95 was strange because 
the 94 strike blew out the World Series on television. Obviously, it was no World Series. And ABC and NBC then were alternating years that they would carry the series. So we split the World Series between ABC and NBC. So Bob Euchre, Joe Morgan, and I, we did games two, three, and six. Al, Tim, and Jim did games one, four, and five. And what I remember about that is we were doing the same thing with the LCS. So we're in Seattle for game six between the Mariners and the Indians. And Al, Tim, and Jim are at the batting cage before game six. Bob Uecker and I are standing there. They're there just in case there is a game seven. And it's in Seattle, for gosh sakes. Al lives in Los Angeles, but Tim had to come from Florida, I think, and Jim had to come oh from God. Baltimore. And there they are in Seattle at the batting cage. Nothing to do unless the Mariners win this game. So Euchre and I say, look, at the very least, the game's on Pacific time. It won't be that late. When it's over with, if there's no game seven, we'll buy you dinner. So we all went to dinner, and they had to lick their wounds and go back home. They made the whole trip for nothing. Same thing in Atlanta a couple of weeks later. We're doing game six, and here they are at the batting cage just in case there's a game seven. And Glavin pitched the masterpiece. The Braves won the game one to nothing. And Al, Tim, and Jim might have gotten the frequent flyer miles, but they got nothing else out of it. No game seven. Oh, my God. That, that's, that's funny. But uh, you know, you're talking about – uh, 85, I was with the Royals. I ended my career in 84 with the Royals. You know, and I played with George Brett. And I, I was like, golly, I was kicking myself because Dick Hauser was the manager in 84. And mm-hmm. I, I, came, I came back from the Yankees and I was like, I retired to go manage. And I was kicking myself because I go, geez, if I would stay with Kansas City, I could have won another World Series, you know. But Brett was just a phenomenal. And, and one of the moments that I remember was in uh, 1980. We, we got swept by the Royals in the first round, and mm-hmm. actually, we had a great team that year. We won 103 games, but I'll never forget the home run Brett hit off Gossage in the last inning. He hit it in the third deck, I think, and that was the quietest yeah. I have ever heard Yankee Stadium. I mean, he was just the phenomenal hitter. Well, that year, he hit 390, and I remember that home run really well. It, it was like a cannon shot, and like you say, a sellout crowd fell completely silent. You could have been in a library, practically, while George rounded the bases. And Al Michaels, who was calling the game for ABC, a good friend of mine, told me recently that he got a lot of flack from Kansas City fans because he fell silent while Brett rounded the bases because his sense of the moment was that the audience should feel just how much the mood had changed from a a whole lot of cheering to complete silence. But Kansas City fans interpreted that as meaning that Al was rooting for the Yankees and he wasn't excited about Kansas City having its big moment and completing the sweep, which, by the way, is something that always happens on national telecasts. There are people who are convinced that Joe Buck hates every team in Major League Baseball and every team in the NFL, which, which means only <laughs> your team. Right. So, yeah. so the Red Sox are playing the Yankees and people in Boston are convinced he hates the Red Sox and loves the Yankees. And people in New York are convinced that it's, that it's the other way around. And by the way, before I forget, you're retiring just before that 85 season. Think of it this way. It opened the door for the immortal buddy Bianca Lana. Oh, it did. Yes. <laughs> yes, it sure did. But I, I, I remember Dick Hauser. I hate, I hate to say this, but in, in 84, we were in Oakland getting ready for the playoffs, you know, because they, they had already clinched the pennant and Buddy was coming up to hit and he had come back off a rib cage 
uh, pull and um, he had his bat and he started to walk up to the batting cage and Hauser looked at him and said, I don't think you need that, buddy. Go put it out and go catch some ground balls. <laughs> and I just, I busted out laughing. I, I mean, I was, it was, I was killing myself laughing when he said that because Dick Hauser had that dry sense of humor. I, he's one of the fun guys I've ever played with, one of my favorites. And he was a great guy. And I was so glad that, you know, that he got a, a chance to win a World Series because in 1980, you know, I thought he did a great job. We won 103. And, you know, we just so happened Kansas City. You know, after so many years of beating us, they finally got our number and beat us three straight. But uh, he was, he was a, one of my favorite guys to play for. If people forget what a rivalry that was. The Royals and the Yankees four times, right? 76, yeah. 77, 78. Mm-hmm. The Royals have very good teams under Whitey Herzog, really good teams. And the, the series are really good series. But each time the Yankees won, and then, like you said, finally in 1980, the Royals broke through. But, uh, you know, why do you seem to put those kind of teams together? I mean, you know, with that turf, you know, turf was just starting to, to really come in and he built that team with, you know, speed, power, you know, they had good pitching. They, 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 they were just tough to beat in Kansas City on that AstroTurf. Uh, I, I remember in New York, you know, it was like we dreaded to play those guys. I mean, the Red Sox were our biggest rivalry, but Kansas City became the second biggest rivalry, mm-hmm. you know, other than the Dodgers from the National League. And Willie Randolph and I were talking about that, you know, like when Hal McCray took him out at second base and, you know, knocked him into left field on, on a double play. Um, but they, they were intense games. You know, Hal McCray, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you were involved in a lot of those DP pivots, but it was always my impression that before they changed the rules more recently and you really could slam into guys, that Hal McCray was one of those guys that you really had to be wary of because he would take your head off if he could. Well, you know, back then they could roll block, and I hated playing shortstop with somebody. I always knew who they were, like McCray, but I hated guys to roll block because you couldn't seem to get up and get over them and get out of the way. And I had Willie on, and we were talking about that, and I said, Hal McCray got me in 75 when I was with the White Sox. I was playing Mayberry behind second base. And he hit a one hopper to me. McCray was on, and I came across the bag, and he kind of ran out of the baseline. So I threw it, and the next thing I know, I mean, I'm picking myself up behind the bag. He knocked my hat, my glove off, and you know, I jumped up, and Ron Luciano grabbed me. But I never forgot that, you know, him coming down there and roll blocking. And you really don't forget those kind of guys that come down on you. The Reggie Jacksons, when I played against him, the Kirk Gibsons, he sounded like like a freight train coming in there, you know. So. You don't, you don't forget those guys, but uh, Willie and I were saying that that 77, when he took him out at second base, that the one thing that saved him, he said, is, you know, I was taught to get off my feet from Bill Mazeroski, so my feet were off the ground when he hit me and I didn't get hurt. But um, yeah, Hal McCray was one of those tough guys coming in there that would go after you to, to hurt you, you know, and, and a lot of these guys today, you know, I, I talked to him about, you know, the young guys, you know, as far as, you know, they're lucky because they don't have to get out of the way of the double play anymore. They can stand right there and they have to slide at the back where before you had to have a good teacher to teach you to get the heck out of the way, you know, and clear yourself mm-hmm. of the bag or, or you were going to get hurt or, or spike. But do you like a lot of the rule changes that they're making? I mean, in the game uh, with the with the relief pitchers, I mean, trying to speed the game up in, in, in certain ways? Well, I think they're all attempts to deal with a real fundamental problem that modern baseball has which is the length and pace of games. Baseball has always supposed to have a leisurely pace. That's part of its appeal. But it's not Mm -hmm. supposed to have a lethargic pace, which it too often has now, 
where even those of us who really love baseball find it difficult to watch a three to one game that winds up going three and a half hours. That just doesn't feel right. And especially with the modern pace of life and people with their attention spans reduced and younger people on their devices and doing three and four things at once and highlights available everywhere. It's a tough sell, especially because baseball plays 162 games. So every game doesn't feel like an event like football does or doesn't have the atmosphere of college sports. It's just different. It's a very difficult sell for baseball as an entertainment product when the games drag on this long. So some of these changes, specifically the reliever having to face at least three guys, unless he comes in with two outs or something and finishes the inning, or even pointing to first base, this seems silly, pointing to first base on an intentional walk. On average, there's one intentional walk per game, not one per Mm -hmm. team. On average, one intentional walk per game. How much time does that really save? And what it actually does is it takes away a little bit of the drama because you know when a guy is intentionally walked, the guy in the on-deck circle feels like he's been dissed. And so the camera goes to this guy. Now he walks toward the plate. Or is he going to be called back and they're going to send up a pinch hitter? Plus the time that it takes to throw those four seemingly harmless pitches high and wide, that's when the fan or the broadcaster begins to talk about it. Would you do this? Would you do that? Here's what they're going to do. Force it every base, all that stuff. I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but it just seems like a little piece of the texture of baseball goes away. And what are both of these things? Just as two examples, pointing to first base and the three batter rule. It's like putting a bandaid on a wound that's hemorrhaging. The real problem for baseball is its fundamental pace and what analytics tell front offices and the people in the dugout is best for gaining a winning edge, is not best for baseball as an entertainment product. If it's all or nothing, the ball's not in play, common sense tells you if there's this many strikeouts, then some of the outs that do result from contact aren't first or second pitch contact. You're going deep into counts if you're getting that many strikeouts, and the game is moving along. There's no stigma to striking out. Launch angle is the thing. Up and down the lineup, guys who hit eighth and ninth, are are home run threats. So you get kind of a one-note type of baseball. Mm -hmm. And not only is that not as rewarding, at least to people like you and me, but it stretches the game out. And when you see guys step out of the box after taking ball one, not having swung, they step out of the box, readjust their batting glove or their wristband or whatever, that isn't just posing for the camera. You know, Bucky, part of that You think the primary example, and I'm not dissing this guy, he's a heck of a hitter, and he's a smart player. J.D. Martinez, when he steps out of the box after every pitch, he's running a mental inventory of everything he studied on video, which might include his previous at-bat in this same game. So now the count's 1-0. If that had been a strike and it's 0-1, what does my video study tell me that I should be thinking about now? Meanwhile, the pitcher is looking inside his cap to see which sequence of signs we're using because they might be trying to steal our signs from someplace or might be old school as a guy on second base. All of this overthinking drags the game out. You know, people talk about, um, and I'm in favor of this with nobody on base, a 20-second pitch clock, and yet during the period of time when there was no baseball, so at the MLB Network we were pulling archival games off the shelf, I took note. I held a stopwatch. There were many times you're watching Tom Seaver or even a run-of-the-mill pitcher in a game from the 80s, there would be three pitches thrown in 20 seconds. The first Mm -hmm. one, the guy gets the ball back, nods, gets his sign. Next one, 
three pitches. Wouldn't have needed a pitch clock. Now, now you, you got guys, you know, walking around. There are some guys who average 25 to 30 seconds between pitches. What the heck is that? If it's the ninth inning of an important game and it's a tense situation and a guy removes his cap and he wipes his brow, then that's different. That adds to the drama of it. But in the fourth inning with the score, you know, three to three to one in the fourth inning and nobody on base, do we need that? Get on with it, boys. Get on with it. Yes, sir. And you, you do MLB with one of my favorite people, Jim Cott, and I play behind yeah. him. And I'm telling you what, I, I think the longest inning he had, the one year I played behind him, was like nine minutes. I mean, he just got the ball and went right after you. And that's, you know, Catfish Hunter was the same. I mean, they just got the ball back and they just threw it. And I saw the 22nd clock work in the SEC when my son played at Florida. They put it in the one year and it actually worked. Guys got the ball. They got on the mound, except when men on base, you know, they, they didn't use it. But it did work. But if you're going to put it in Major League Baseball, they have to play by the rules, you know, where guys say, you know, the hitter says, I'm not, I'm stepping out when I want to, you know, I'm going to adjust my glove, like my car grove, you know, somebody like right. that, but you got to, you got to be able to enforce it. And if they're not going to first for enforce it, then it's probably not going to work. Well, you know, one of the things that has to happen and there's such tension um, and mistrust between the players association and the owners and commissioner's office, they got to sit down and you hope that maybe these circumstances, the pandemic and everything else and what it's done to baseball financially will get them to see their mutual interest. The players, their agents, front office people have got to realize, look, analytics matter. Yes, all this stuff matters. You've grown up watching video of every at-bat you ever had, but we've got to arrive at some kind of compromise here, taking in, into account the big picture. What's best for this sport as an entertainment product, because if our fan base shrivels, if our television ratings are diminished, and there's multiple overlying factors as to why television ratings are down, it's a different age, and not all of it has to do with the quality of the games, but some of it has to do with how long these games take. Think of postseason games, schools in session, and under normal circumstances, everybody's going to work the next day, and you got postseason games that literally last more than four hours. And they often start after 8 o'clock Eastern time. So some of the most important and dramatic stuff is happening when much of the audience, even if it wants to, isn't available anymore uh, because they got to go to bed. If it's the seventh inning and you know that this game is going to take two and a half hours, you're going to stick it out. If it's the seventh inning and we're already at three hours and 15 minutes and this is the pace, you might not stick it out. I totally agree. Going into this postseason, who's your picks? Who, who are you picking Go go down to the wire. Dodgers, Yankees, who, who are you picking? You know, the Dodgers are definitely the best team. But when you're looking at a two out of three, anything, anything could happen. And Dodgers, totally Yankees, agree. you know, Dodgers, Yankees, even without uh, fans in the stands or, um, or with a, only a handful of fans in the stands, plus it's not a Yankee stadium or Dodger stadium, it's going to be in the new ballpark in Arlington. That's not going to have the same feeling, obviously, but it's those two markets. So in one sense, that's good for baseball. I'll tell you a team that you got to watch. They were well-suited to this short sprint. And I imagine, again, two out of three is a crapshoot. But if we get past that, I think the Tampa Bay Rays are a team you have to look at. They've got three quality starters at the top, but they've also built their entire team with an eye toward depth of pitching. Over 162, that's made them a contender. 
in this circumstance, they've got a better record than the Yankees. They win the American League East, and they will come at you with a battalion of pitchers, uh, and they'll use them in any way outside of, of Snell, Glasnow, and Morton. Basically, they'll use any combination of pitchers to get them through a game, and I think that's, that's well-suited to these odd set of circumstances. Do you think they got enough hitting to get them there, though? With the Yankees at full you know, strength with all their hitters, do they have enough to, you know, to score enough runs? They're not an offensive powerhouse. They're obviously not an offensive powerhouse. They play with a tremendous amount of energy, though. There's a little bit of old school in them, uh, in the way they run the bases, in how they take the extra base. They put pressure on, on the defense. Uh, they're an interesting team to watch because they're different uh, from most of the other teams. But, you know, obviously you're right. They're not going to win many games 10 to 9. And this postseason is going to be so quirky. The first round is going to produce some quirky results. And you know that there are people on Park Avenue praying that the Dodgers don't get tripped up or the Yankees don't get tripped up in a best two out of three. But there's, you know, there's a lot of ways you could look at this. What if the White Sox played the Padres in the World Series? Now, I realize that that's not going to excite the average fan or the casual fan in Delaware or Rhode Island, maybe all that much. But these are interesting, exciting young teams with really good young talent. So, you know, as a baseball fan, I wouldn't mind that. Maybe for television ratings, it's not as good as some other pairings you could think of. Oh, I agree. I, I totally agree. You know, I have one more question for you, for because I know your your time's valuable and you got to go get going. But one more question: Who, when you were growing up, was your favorite announcer that you loved to listen to? I mean, I remember listening to Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee mm-hmm. Reese and guy and guys like that. Who was who was the one guy that that you just loved to listen to? The one guy, and I think a lot of people whose primary love is baseball would give you the same answer, was Vin Scully. I lived in California when I was eight, nine years old. Uh, We moved briefly to California, early 1960s. And so I was listening to Vin on the radio. I was one of those people with the transistor radio under the pillow when, you know, your mom and dad thought you were asleep. And I'm listening to Vin Scully with that incomparable pace and rhythm and command of language and distinctive voice. But there were so many others. Most of my childhood was in New York. So I'm listening to Red Barber and Mel Allen and Lindsey Nelson and Marty Glickman. And then when I turn my attentions toward network television, I always liked people like Jim McKay and Jack Whitaker, who weren't just sportscasters, they were essayists. And I hope, I don't know if I ever reached that level, but I hope I brought some of that uh, to my own work. And then when I went to St. Louis as a young guy, there was Jack Buck doing the Cardinal games. And Jack was kind of a cross between the bombast of Harry Carey and the the style of Vin Scully. He kind of combined qualities that each of them had, and he had a dry wit on top of it. So I've always felt, Bucky, that you don't copy anybody. I think that's a real bad idea. When I got to Syracuse, every kid doing Syracuse basketball games on the campus radio station, every kid tried to sound like Marv Albert, including me because Marv was so great then doing the Knicks games on the radio. But if you copied Marv Albert, he's so distinctive. If you copied him, you'd just sound like a pale imitation. So you can be influenced by the people you admire, but you really shouldn't try to copy them because they wouldn't be great if it was easy enough to imitate them. If you thought you could just imitate Vin Scully, 
He'd be a B-minus version of Vince Scully. Let him be who he is, the one and only. Be influenced by it in terms of preparation and pace and all that stuff, but be yourself. It's been a huge honor for me to be able to have you on my show, and you're just uh, you know, just a, such a class guy. And you know, like I said, we've run into each other, and you know, your voice is like those guys. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm grateful that you gave me the time and, and shared these great memories with me on my anniversary show coming up here on, you know, in a couple of days. But I just want to thank you, Bob, so much. It, it's just been a huge honor. Thanks very much, Bucky. That means a lot to me. And of course, I owe you one because you came into the studio at MLBN with uh, Lou Pinella and we That's relived right. the, the playoff game in 1978, which for a single game, it wasn't just that it was exciting. Um, it had so much to it. Right, you could go almost batter by batter through that game. It had Absolutely. so much to it. Yep. So the little, there you go. Little things are one of the great plays, the the matchups and stuff like that. But to have you on my show, I, I just can't thank you enough. And uh, we'll cross paths again. I'm looking forward to seeing you. At, you know, when this pandemic gets over and we don't have to wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> you you got it. Any any time, Bucky. Be well. Wow, man, what a what a great show. I mean, just the guy's just so much knowledge of baseball and history and uh, his voice. And he's just one of those guys that uh, his voice just, you know, just it just mesmerizes you. I'm just so glad that we had a chance to get him on. Bucky, I was sitting here just watching the levels and keeping things going for about 35 minutes there. And my mind didn't wander once. It was just awesome listening to the two of you. I could have gone on for hours. That's the thing I keep saying that's interesting, you know, is when you do research, you know, you look at things and things pop up, you know, about guys. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that he, you know, started out from Syracuse doing hockey. And, but, you know, just to hear him talk about baseball and he's so elegant. No, it's a great way of putting it. Elegant is a good word. He's just elegant and in his voice and he's done so much, you know, the Olympics. And um, it's, it's just fun to talk to him. Yeah, it's, honestly, like part of the bummer, <laughs> if you will, of having him on here is, I mean, obviously he stopped doing the Olympics now, I think uh, one cycle mm-hmm. ago, but having him on here, one of the things that I kept thinking about listening is just how sad I am that there wasn't an Olympics this year. And every time I say anything that I'm sad about, I feel like I need to throw out a disclaimer that, yep. you know, that there, there are real tragedies in the world right now and my not getting to watch Olympic track and field is probably not one of them, but man, it, it just, you're not into pole vaulting. It would have been <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe pole vaulting. That's fair. But, but here's the thing, Bucky, before, before we, uh, before I let you go for the week or if you will, it is, it is the uh, anniversary episode of uh, the deep to left home run. And, and I, I gotta know, I'm, I'm just, there, there are so many things I'm curious about and I, I apologize if it feels like I'm going to pepper you or interrogate you with some questions right now. But the, the first thing that I, I, I think I have a sense of this from the relationship you and I have had for about almost a year now and and getting to know you, but how much a part of your life is that home run? Well, it's, it's a huge part of my life because it's uh, history and, you know, Yankees, uh, Red Sox, it, it sports, I always say is, is a game of moments. And there's times, you know, in, in sports history that you remember things, you know, and that game because of the day, uh, you know, it was a Jewish holiday. It was a one-game playoff, Boston, New York. And, uh, you know, it comes down to, you know, you lose, you go home. And 
everybody it seemed like the world just stopped to watch that game. So um, it's been a huge part. Uh, one of my closest friends called me after that game and said, this is going to change your life. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about until the World Series was over. But uh, it did. You know, I mean, people love to talk about that game because it was history. You know, we uh, we spent some time this week, as we, as we normally do, prepping for this week's episode. And I actually went back to the first time that I, I worked with Bob Costas, which was editing an article he wrote uh, for the 2003 World Series program back when I was working for MLB Publications. And it was the 100th anniversary of the World Series. We gave him the back page essay to kind of sum up uh, some of the romance of baseball in a sense. And, and the way he did it was by essentially comparing and, and I'm simplifying here, but comparing Al Weiss and Ernie mm-hmm. Banks. It's only in baseball can mm-hmm. it happen that a guy like Ernie Banks can have the career he had and the life he had and never get a chance to be in the World Series. And a guy like Al Weiss can be the hero. You know, there, there aren't enough guys on the court in basketball for there to be an unexpected, a truly unexpected hero. And in football, unless maybe a defensive lineman miraculously intercepts the ball and runs it back, you know, everyone else is, is part of the action in a sense. Mm-hmm. Only in baseball. And you have the truly shocking moment. Well, like it's, like, it's like Mazeroski broke my heart when I was a kid watching the World Series when, when he hit the home run to beat the Yankees. And, uh, you know, I, I never forgot that. I never forgot Chambliss's home run. You know, we had him on last week. And uh, I never forgot his home run running around the bases. Uh, you know, there's moments in sports that you just don't forget. But the Boston Yankee Series, you know, October 2nd, 1978, was one of the greatest games ever played. And I just, you know, thank God every day that I had a chance to play in, in something that I dreamed of as a kid. It came true. I think this might be an obnoxious question, which is why I've waited 16 episodes mm-hmm. to ask it, so you'll forgive me. Part of the mystique of the home run is that anyone who wants to talk about the home run has to kind of point out why it was shocking. Yeah. Is there ever a time when you want to say to somebody like, you know what, I wasn't that bad hitter. <laughs> Give me a break here. <laughs> no, you know what I say to them? If you got a bat in your hand, you're dangerous. I don't care who you are. You're you're not in the big leagues because you're not any good. You know, you're you're there because, you know, you're pretty good. And I don't care whether you bat one or nine. You know, when you got a bat in your hands, you you got a chance to do some damage. And uh, you know, I, people joke about it and this and that and the other. And I joked with all the I went to a home run hitting contest out in San Diego when I retired and they had all the great home run hitters out there and I'd said, you know, all you guys hit four or five hundred home runs. I just had to hit one, <laughs> you know, and I used to laugh about it, you know, and they just turn around and look at me like, you know, you're an idiot. And I go, yeah, I am. But I hit a big home run. <laughs> it, it, it buys you a lot of uh, capital, huh? <laughs> That's it. That's it. You know, but uh, what a great show. And I just, oh man, um, I just love having him on. That was, that was terrific. And Bucky, like I said, you know, we're going to keep going on this. We're not, we're not by any means done yet. Uh, postseason starting right now, though it's October baseball. It is that time of year when people start thinking about Bucky Dent and Bucky Dent's home run again. So, you know, I, I hope you get a lot of enjoyment out of October 2nd this year. I know that uh, my however vague association with you, uh, I know I'll get enjoyment out of it this year and, and, and know how much joy I've gotten from just ex- kind of going through this year with you and, and telling these and hearing these stories and listening to you share them with buddies. So here's to many more. It's been fun. And we'll, you know, we got some more to go and we got a few more great guests coming on. So I'm looking forward to it myself, but I'm looking forward to the postseasons too. And, and I'm hoping that the Yankees will break the spell of 11 years without a world championship. Well, from, from your mouth, man. Have, have a great week, Bucky, and uh, enjoy the postseason and enjoy the anniversary. 
Thank you very much. I'm going to sit back and have you know, maybe a glass of wine or two and just, you know, relive the memories. But uh, it's been enjoyable and look forward to the next one. Thanks, Bucky. And uh, to everyone else, thanks for listening to another episode of Deep to Left with Bucky Dent. Before you go, I want to tell you a little bit more about the Yankees Magazine Podcast Network. If you liked hearing from Bucky today, you should also check out the Yankees Magazine Podcast, where we break down some of our written stories from each new magazine and, of course, talk Yankees baseball. On the latest episode, we chatted about our feature on DJ LeMayhew, plus we brought on MLB.com's Brian Hoke to give a little bit of a look at what to expect during the postseason. If you're not subscribed, what are you waiting for? We're available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at yankees.com slash podcast. Give us a review. Give us a rating. You can even send us your thoughts over email, podcasts at yankees.com. And for my Yankees Magazine subscribers, just want to say how grateful we are that you stuck with us through this difficult year. And to thank you, we're going to be sending you a free copy of the 2020 New York Yankees yearbook. If you'd like to subscribe to Yankees Magazine, or if you'd like to gift someone a subscription, or even just renew a subscription, you can call 800-GO-YANKS, or you can head over to yankees.com slash publications for more information. Plus, if you'd like to see our content online, get a taste of it at yankees.com slash magazine. There you'll find our latest features to read from the magazine, and we're also on Twitter, at Yanks Magazine. Give us a follow and be up to date with every podcast and magazine we produce. That's it. See you next time. Go Yanks! Happy anniversary to Bucky Den. We'll speak to you soon. Hi, this is Adam Adovino. For more stories like these, subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS.